0: When some staff members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, including Jesse Jackson, resisted the proposal of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., to go to Memphis in support of the striking sanitation workers, Dr. King was incensed. Some staff members, concerned with their own more favored projects, argued that this new project would spread them too thin. Dr. King issued a strong rebuke to their narrowing of the horizons of the movement and argued that he thought that this country was in critical condition and that they all had to work together to redeem the soul of America. Frady 1996-225 Dr. Martin Luther King was a man with a transcendent vision, but in stating these prescient sentiments he stood on the shoulders of giants. This is too often forgotten in treatments of the civil rights movement. I try in this chapter to understand the role of the civil rights movement in the context of its larger role as a force for the democratization of U.S. society as a whole, both internally and in its international relations. Such transformative movements not only change the relations of force between mobilized oppressed strata and those who seek to occupy a privileged position in the body politic but also powerfully transform our collective understanding of social reality. We come to see the oppressed strata with new eyes, and they see themselves with new eyes. We reach for a new collective understanding of our social world as a consequence of such transformative social struggles. The rise of the lower strata in the civil rights period and throughout the post-war world stimulated new understandings of the social world. While liberals and leftists have tended to disregard FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's fear of subversion in the civil rights movement as either a disingenuous cover for his own racism or the paranoid fantasy of an anti-communist psychosis, I argue that Hoover's fears were well-founded within the context of his own premise, that the civil rights movement posed a fundamental threat to the power arrangements of the American social order that he was sworn to defend. I have long felt that the lack of a serious appraisal of J. Edgar Hoover among liberals stemmed from a fear of confronting the contradictions in liberalism itself, partly revealed in its bastard offspring, neoconservatism. American liberalism is particularly torn between its egalitarian principles, vis-à-vis the New Deal and great society traditions, and its desire for stability and social order, stemming both from its social position as the hegemonic power in the capitalist world economy and from its propagation of one of the founding principles of the capitalist world. The Myth of Pan-European Supremacy Martin Luther King understood well these contradictions. His statement in his letter from a Birmingham jail could apply to liberals as well as to moderates. I must confess that over the last few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace which is the presence of justice. We will have to repent in this generation not merely the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. King 1986-295-296 While broad segments of white America speak with pride of their support of the civil rights tradition of Martin Luther King, at least up to the 1963-1965 period, there were some who had serious reservations. Despite the accolades given today to Martin Luther King's dream, there were a good many liberals who shared J. Edgar Hoover's fears about the civil rights movement, that it would ratchet up general dissatisfaction with America, leading others not only to support the demands of the Negro but to seek redress of their own grievances, causing an exponential growth in dissatisfaction with the American social order and the alleged Euro-American cultural foundation of humanity's greatest achievements. One can sense this ambivalence in the public pronouncement of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, one public figure who has consistently supported redistributive programs on behalf of the disadvantaged. Moynihan decried America's inaction in the face of the increasing crises and consequent alienation of the Negro inner city. While Moynihan's concern that the Nation of Islam and other black militants might soon follow the model of the Chinese communists may today seem totally outside the bounds of scholarly discussion. It makes perfect sense given Moynihan's clear combination of support for redistributive programs and opposition to programs that enhance the social and political power of the poor because they gave them the wrong message about how one should pursue success in America. Moynihan perfectly reflects the neoconservative dilemma without committing himself to the neoconservative movement. Studies of the civil rights and black power movements of the 1960s have provided us with rich and powerful analyses of the sources of the struggle, the resources that enabled people to struggle effectively, and the intelligence, creativity, and vision of the women and men who committed their lives to the struggle for justice, equality, and democracy in America. Yet despite their status as second-class citizens, often occupying segregated ghettos away from the American mainstream, Black people and their struggles have been remarkably central to the story of American democracy and will continue to be central to the task of completing the Great American Revolution. The story of the Civil Rights Movement in its broad outlines is familiar to many readers, I do not repeat it here. I present here an intellectual history that focuses on the interaction of the ideas put forward by the Civil Rights and Black Power movements, the evolution of ideas and strategies in the liberal center and the rise of a counter-revolutionary ideology fashioned in opposition to the radical threat posed by the rise of an increasingly large cadre of revolutionary ideologues and their location in an increasingly insurrectionary inner-city poor, the corollary of the 19th century dangerous classes. The black freedom struggle assumed a variety of organizational forms in its attempts to articulate the increasingly assertive, militant, and radical sentiments of people in America's inner cities. Some of the pivotal organizations of the 1960s radical awakening were the Nation of Islam, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee (SNCC), the Revolutionary Action Movement, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, the Black Panther Party, and the Students for a Democratic Society (SDS). While these organizations constituted much of the core of the mid-1960s black power militancy, they ultimately gave way to attempts to transcend the limitations of the civil rights, black power, and new left movements. The histories of these organizations provide us with spectacular stories of heroism, creativity, and vision. Yet despite the boldness and creativity of the individual and organizational leadership that came to the fore in the 1960s, the level of challenge that they mounted could not be normalized. It depended on the continued mobilization of an insurrectionary community. Once the insurrection subsided, the forces of repression moved to eliminate the threat to the social order. The revolutionary militants who came to the fore during this period returned to the drawing boards to figure out the way forward. Instead of seeking to deepen their understanding of the complex relationship between the action of the masses and the thinking of leaders, intellectuals, and organizations, they overemphasized the role of organization and leadership and their failure to give sufficient leadership to the spontaneous rebellion of the masses. The militants thus concluded that they had failed as revolutionaries and looked for a revolutionary model that would enable them to organize their communities for a protracted struggle for power and social transformation. Most scholars of social movements have simply dismissed this period as the thrashings of a wounded beast going through its final death throes, descending predictably into a swamp of sectarianism, bickering, and utopian groups far removed from the concerns of their former inner-city bases. I believe that the evolution was far more complex and is thus worthy of much closer study. While these scholars lament the shattering of the left liberal consensus of the 1960s and attribute it to the extremism of the militants, I argue that the shattering of the left liberal consensus was both inevitable and over the long run liberating. In contrast to those who attribute the fracturing of the coalition to the extremism of the new left, I argue that it was the liberal center that imploded the coalition by its collusion with the right and the brutal repression of the popular left, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, the SNCC, the SDS, and its acceptance of the presumptions of American power as a force for good in the world. The strategy of armed self-defense used by some of the Black Power militants was not a strategy for urban guerrilla warfare. While the notion of urban guerrilla warfare had some currency during the earlier cadre development period among the forces associated with the Revolutionary Action Movement, it did not by and large survive the mass mobilization period of the later 60s, when the Black Panther Party and others articulated the notion of the Long March. The concept regained currency among some only after the murderous assault on the movement's leaders, including Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and many leaders of the Black Panther Party. Both the Black Panther Party and the Nation of Islam advocated a policy of self defense, which clearly incited the animosity of federal and local law enforcement agencies, whose command of a counterinsurgency state allowed them to plot the wanton murder of popular black leaders. These law enforcement agencies pursued the suppression of the militants with reckless glee and cold blooded ruthlessness. This was a shattering dose of reality. It absolutely crushed any illusions about the liberal democratic nature of the United States for those who were members of the opposition. It led to a search for an approach that did not result in the kind of vulnerability that allowed the late 1960s black power militants to be so easily targeted and eliminated. The new left as a social force had come to the fore in opposition to the alleged collusion and betrayal of the old left, both social democratic and communist. This hostility toward the Old Left meant that the members of the New Left were not only unlikely to form working relationships with the Old Left, but also unlikely to engage in a careful study of their experience. Those who had relative trust in the liberal democratic nature of U.S. society attempted to consolidate their forces. The New American Movement merged with the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee to become the multi-tendency Democratic Socialists of America. Those who were most influenced by the struggles of the excluded minorities tended to focus on the exclusionary rather than the democratic aspects of U.S. society and thus searched for a model capable of withstanding the extremes of repression likely to be used in a revolutionary situation. These militants were attracted to the model of professional revolutionaries developed by the Third International when they formed the leadership of the resistance movement against fascism. Among these militants some followed not only the organizational form of the Third International but also the Marxist-Leninist theoretical framework, which they felt allowed for the development of a truly revolutionary unity of theory and practice. Some Black, Latino, Asian, and Native American militants adopted the organizational forms of the Third International but clung to a theoretical framework more revolutionary nationalist in content and, like most of these forces, deeply influenced by Maoism. While the paramilitary organizational forms used by these movements often fostered dogmatism in their ranks, the spirit of Maoism was deeply democratic, in line with the democratic critique of the new left overall. It was precisely this democratic spirit that led to the spreading of the revolutionary spirit to so many different sectors of the population, and it was this democratic contagion that J. Edgar Hoover wanted to stop. Gil Scott-Heron made precisely this point about the Reagan phenomenon in his epic poem song, B-Movie. Scott Herron tells us of the challenge to U.S. world hegemony during the 1970s. He argues that America no longer had John Wayne to come in and rescue America at the last minute like in a B-movie, so we settled for Ronald Reagan. Go give those liberals hell, that was the message to the new Captain Bly on the new ship of fools, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights. It's all wrong. Call in the cavalry to stop this perception of freedom run wild. Damn it, first one want freedom, and then the whole damn world wants freedom. 1. While we cannot begin to analyze the histories of these organizations in this chapter, I simply allude to them here as a pervasive force and influence on the rapports de force. This book is part of a larger project that will involve a more detailed study of a broad range of organizations such as the Revolutionary Action Movement, the Black Panther Party, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, the Black Workers' Congress, the Congress of African People, the Malcolm X Liberation University, People's College, the Student Organization for Black Unity. Youth Organization of Black Unity, The Revolutionary Workers League, The Patrice Lumumba Coalition, The Harlem Fight Back Organization, The Revolutionary Union, The Progressive Labor Party, Students for a Democratic Society, The Weather Underground Organization, The Sojourner Truth Organization, The Communist Labor Party, The Communist Workers Party, The Revolutionary Communist League, The Workers Viewpoint Organization, The October League, The Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers Organization the August 29 Movement, the Prairie Fire Organizing Committee, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, the African People's Party, the African People's Socialist Party, the Black Workers for Justice, the Third World Women's Alliance, Land of March, the Communist Party USA, the Black Liberation Army, and the Black Guerrilla Family. Simply listing these organizations seems to be a stark counterpoint to the relative moderation of some of the black public intellectuals who came to define the black left in the 1980s and 1990s and the conservative black nationalists who were associated in the public mind with black radicalism. Just who were these bad and militant children of the 60s, Marable 1981-93? Were they simply a product of that particular time, or do they have antecedents and descendants that would help us understand the contradictions and difficulties of our history? What does social movement theory tell us about this history? Can the revolutionary musings and hopes of this generation of black youth be seen as simply a negation of what Malcolm X identified as an American nightmare, or were they an expression of frustration about being excluded from the American dream of which Martin Luther King spoke so eloquently? Maybe there was nothing as grand and eloquent as I and its participants imagined, just the age-old drama of hopes frustrated and opportunities found. I have developed a theme about the relation of the Black Liberation Movement to the American Dream that I use in public presentations designed for recruitment, celebrations, memorials, and the like. Gradually I began to wonder if slain civil rights leaders Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King could effectively be used as the vehicles for mounting a critique of the hypocrisy of the American Dream? Once I moved beyond a popular approach, I became aware of how difficult it was to separate these two towering figures from their social location in the American century despite the enormous international influences on their thought and action. Thus, despite the various labels attached to these imposing figures of the 20th century world, they were both quintessential products of the American century, and they spoke most eloquently across the color line and across national borders about the possibilities of a better world, a world that is substantively democratic, egalitarian, and just. These two leaders were steeped in the respective African-American traditions of field Negro revolt and talented Tenth Radicalism, which they intertwined with the most advanced thinking in both the U.S. and world arenas. The synthesis that each of these men made was based on the work of the giants who had come before them, John Brown, Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Dubois, Marcus Garvey, Paul Robeson, Ida Wells Barnett, Cyril Briggs, and so on. The 1960s Rebellion The 1960s was a period of considerable social unrest throughout the world system. The 1950s dream of a white middle-class American utopia safely tucked away in a suburban haven was challenged by the realities of a larger world more racially and ethnically diverse, much less well-to-do, and residing across a wide geographic expanse far beyond the idyllic world of the 1950s American century. While the 1960s is viewed by most as a tumultuous period in U.S. history. Only a few writers have seen clearly that it was comparable to the Civil War of the 1860s. That this period is sometimes referred to as the Second Reconstruction by radical intellectuals and activists is only a partial recognition of its historical significance. In the United States, the revolt was spearheaded by the rebellion of the African American people. The intensity of the Black Revolt surprised not only the U.S. left but also intellectuals and revolutionaries throughout the world system, for it did not accord with the analytic frameworks in which most operated. The Chinese, Cuban, and African revolutionaries were among the first of the mid-century revolutionary generation to view the African-American revolt as part of the worldwide revolt against white Western domination. Mao Zedong argued that the evil system of imperialism began with the enslavement of the Negro people and would surely come to an end with the complete liberation of the black people. Malcolm X's meteoric rise to revolutionary status after his split with the Nation of Islam was not in any way a product of Maoist dogma but the elaboration of a much older revolutionary tradition related by a similar but historically independent relationship to the larger social world. Malcolm X drew from the long tradition of field Negro revolt that partook of an independent assessment of world anti-colonial, socialist, and revolutionary forces over the course of the 20th century. Two. Anti-colonial agitation was far from new to African Americans who frequently made common cause with victims of colonial oppression, often seeing their own situation as parallel in some ways. From the the turn-of-the-century attack on the humanity of African people, an anti-colonial, anti-imperialist mentality took shape in the African diaspora. From the Ethiopian defeat of the Italian invaders in 1897 to the Pan-African Congress of 1900, to Hubert Harrison's Race First movement, to the identification with Japan's 1905 victory over Russia to Cyril Briggs in the African Blood Brotherhood, to Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, to the massive movement against Benito Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia, to the efforts of Dubois, Robeson, and Shirley Graham in the Council on African Affairs we see the growth and maturation of a radical anti-colonial mentality among African American activists and intellectuals.3 The modern civil rights movement was a product of the post-World War II world. In the international arena, Movements for national liberation were prominent in every part of the formerly colonized world, that is, Indochina, India, China, and Africa. Thus, the civil rights movement was born during a period of worldwide decolonization. In this period, the British, French, and Dutch empires collapsed and new nations emerged composed of people of color. To be able to influence these new nations, the United States had to eliminate its official sanction of segregation and adopt a posture of support for civil rights. African Americans were aware of the decolonization movements in the Third World, and many came to interpret these events as a sign of the increasing vulnerability of white power, not only in the wider world, but at home. The collapse of the European empires seemed a vindication of the notion of the inevitable rise of the Dark World, which was a part of the folklore of the black working-class communities from which Malcolm had come. So during this time of the flowering of the civil rights movement, Malcolm X said that we had arrived at the end of white world supremacy. While the civil rights movement drew inspiration from the challenge to the white world, it did not develop a position so frankly oppositional as Malcolm X and the black nationalists had. The civil rights leaders such as Dr. King and others hoped that their movement might lead to the redemption of America. The major campaigns of the civil rights movement, from the Montgomery bus boycott to the voter registration drives of 1963 and 1964, were aimed at forcing the U.S. social system to live up to its own ideology of equality for all under the law. The overall goal of the movement was the integration of blacks into the existing system, the destruction of caste barriers, and the affording of basic civil rights to all Americans. Initially the movement did not question the structure and goals of the system itself. It was during this period that the movement enjoyed the greatest support of whites in terms of money, the media, personnel, and the government. This is the period of the classical civil rights movement, which simply called on the United States to live up to its ideology. In the period after 1965, equal employment, access to trade unions, affirmative action, and fair housing became the goals of the civil rights movement. These goals called for a redistribution of wealth and services, changes in the functioning of institutions, and changes in the North as well. It was during this period that much white liberal support was withdrawn. There were fundamental challenges to American society concerning its values, its violent history its hypocritical self-image, its role in world affairs, and its economic structure, which was said to generate exploitation at home and dependence abroad. During this period Dr. King's views came increasingly to resemble those of Malcolm X. Malcolm was arguing for a coalition of the radicals in the civil rights movement, black nationalists in the United States, and revolutionaries in the three continents, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. As Malcolm moved actively and aggressively to create such coalitions, he was assassinated by forces in league with the conservative leadership of the Nation of Islam, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Central Intelligence Agency. To understand the reasoning behind the U.S. government's extreme measures against Malcolm X, and later Dr. Martin Luther King and the Black Panther Party, we should review some other aspects of the geopolitical situation in which the civil rights movement came to the fore. The Bolshevik Revolution of World War I had installed a regime in power that had been a decisive factor in the defeat of the fascists and whose military sphere had expanded into Central Europe as a result of the war. This was an element in a larger issue, the rise of a world communist movement. European communist parties had played important roles in the resistance to fascism throughout Europe. While this had been the basis of the ability of communist parties to come to power in some Eastern European countries, with more or less help from the Red Army. Strong communist parties now existed in some Western European countries and appeared to be in a position to challenge the capitalist parties. While the Soviet Union was viewed as the center of the world socialist movement organizing for a worldwide proletarian uprising, it also proclaimed itself the natural ally of the national liberation movements. This claim flowed from its socialist and anti-imperialist ideology but its more solid grounding was that the Soviet bloc consisted primarily of semi-peripheral states who had been victims of semi-colonial or neo-colonial domination. It was thus a combination of fears that drove the United States in this period. There was the possible ideological appeal to a rebellious working class, to a left and in cosmopolitan intelligentsia, and to the left-outs, some of whom identified with allied forces in the Third World, which America was attempting to win to its side in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So when Malcolm X argued that the black freedom struggle was a component of the world struggle against capitalism and imperialism, it was J. Edgar Hoover's and the U.S. ruling establishment's worst nightmare. When Malcolm X successfully drew Martin Luther King into an alliance with him, this all but signed a death warrant for both of them. While black leaders had long criticized U.S. foreign policy, since its role in the Cold War brought it in opposition to the aspirations of people of color in Africa and elsewhere, over time, many black leaders muted their criticism, especially in view of McCarthyism. Paul Robeson, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Shirley Graham were among the few who consistently opposed U.S. foreign policy at great price. All these leaders were both pro socialist and anti imperialist. After the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954, in which the poorly armed Vietnamese decisively defeated the French army, Paul Robeson published an article titled Ho Chi Minh The Toussaint Louvre Tour of Indochina. In this article Robeson not only compared Ho Chi Minh to the famous leader of the Haitian Slave Revolt but also warned of Eisenhower's threat to send Americans to Vietnam to protect the tin, rubber, and tungsten of Southeast Asia for the free world. Dubois criticized the alleged anti-colonial role of the United States as a new type of colonialism. In 1950 Dubois ran for the U.S. Senate in New York on the American Labor Party ticket. In his campaign he was very critical of the anti-communist policies of both the Republican and Democratic parties. On February 8, 1951, the Truman administration indicted DuBois for allegedly being an agent of a foreign power in his work with the Peace Information Center in New York. The 82-year-old DuBois was handcuffed and fingerprinted and treated like a common criminal in the press. In November 1951 a federal judge dismissed the case because the federal government did not submit one shred of evidence to substantiate its claim. In addition to being subjected to legal and paralegal harassment. Both men had their passports revoked and were ostracized by the centrist leadership of the civil rights movement. Benjamin Davis and Henry Winston, black leaders of the Communist Party of the USA, went to prison. While traditional black criticism of U.S. foreign policy waned during this repressive period, the black protest leaders used the United States' sensitivity about its image as the leader of the free world to put pressure on the United States to make certain concessions to blacks. This had been precisely the tack of the early 1940s March on Washington movement led by A. Philip Randolph. In this sense the March on Washington movement was the model for the modern civil rights movement. From 1944 to 1950, black initiatives led to several concessions by the executive and judicial branches of the federal government. The white primaries were struck down in the courts, President Truman formed the first presidential civil rights commission, segregation and interstate bus travel was legally denied. Segregation in the army was attacked, literacy tests for voting were declared unconstitutional, border states began the token desegregation of the graduate schools, dining cars were desegregated, and so on. This was the context in which the NAACP initiated a full fledged attack on the basic principle of separate but equal. Black leaders paid a price for these gains, however, either by soft peddling their opposition to U.S. foreign policy or by outright opposing those such as Robeson, Graham, and Dubois. Who stood up for the indivisibility of the anti-colonial struggles in the Third World and the black struggle for freedom, justice, and equality in the United States? The scourge of McCarthyism was to nearly wipe the memory of these central characters from African American and American life more broadly. But Malcolm X was to revive their vision, more vividly and closer to the grassroots. Malcolm's contentions that people of color were not a minority but a majority of the have-nots in the world and that their struggle should be for their God-given human rights instead of civil rights. Which Uncle Sam could grant or deny at his discretion are examples of how he illuminated the landscapes of an entire generation of intellectuals, activists, and people at the grassroots. Quickly, the recognition began to sink in at the highest levels of the U.S. government. Moynihan compared the Black Revolt to the Chinese Communists, noting that the Black Muslim movement indicated the near total alienation of segments of the African American population from the United States. Others of the U.S. elite compared the Black Revolt to the National Liberation Front in Vietnam but FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had decided in 1963 that the civil rights movement was the leading edge of a social revolution in the United States and he set out to destroy it. Hoover often used the danger of violence to justify his hunting for communists in the civil rights movement, and his concern about communist influence as an excuse for his surveillance of Dr. Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders. His 1963 decision to destroy the civil rights movement, however, Preceded any of the major urban rebellions that rocked the nation's cities from 1964 to 1971. Hoover and the elites he represented were concerned about violence, but this violence was not a product of the activity of the civil rights movement per se, they were both a part of the zeitgeist. Hoover feared that the democratic and egalitarian spirit of the civil rights movement would become contagious, pushing other groups to make similar claims. This would overwhelm the ruling consensus, which was based on the acceptance of the justification of inequality claiming inferiority, lack of initiative, and lack of human capital among groups who were culturally different from those who occupied the social, political, and economic mainstream. Violence was not the issue, it was a symptom of a loss of control and a nearly total lack of legitimacy. While Hoover called for all attempts to prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify the black nationalist hate groups, his intent was to prevent the unification of the disparate members of excluded groups with sympathetic members of the white mainstream. This could create a volatile mix that might be interested in pursuing an egalitarian agenda vis-à-vis the elites of the American race-class system. A major component of the restructuring of the capitalist world system during the period 1945-1990 to was the transnational expansion of U.S. capital. The capital migration of this period was a response to the class and social conflicts of the 1960s and 1970s, which further strengthened the bargaining power of the U.S. labor force, which was established as a consequence of the militant labor struggles of the 1930s.4. In the 1970s, the deepening economic crisis intensified competition among the various segments of the labor force, but during the unprecedented expansion of the 1960s, there seemed to be room to bring more and more people into the labor force. In this situation, concessions could be made to the African-American population, which had mounted a ferocious attack on the citadels of power, including militant protest and violent rebellion. During this period blacks were admitted to sections of the labor force that had previously been closed to them. Black people's history as a labor force in the United States had lent a certain intensity to their perception of social relations in the world of work, however. They thus made demands for treatment that others thought extreme or touchy. Militant caucuses and radical worker organizations were formed all over the country. Given that this new group of militant and radical workers entered the labor force at a time of rapid expansion, their militancy was underscored by a tight labor market. The outcome of this combination of labor market factors led, in capital's view, to an alarming lack of labor discipline. As the profitability of capitalist enterprises began to be squeezed, they sought cheaper and more malleable workforces outside of the core zones. They also manipulated immigration laws to allow for an influx of immigrant laborers who were not citizens, some of whom were not documented. At the same time, they sustained an intense ideological attack on the labor force, targeting their unreliability, lack of discipline, and lack of a work ethic in comparison with the leaner workforces of the periphery. This ideological campaign against a fat-cat working class was complemented by a subterranean campaign designed to justify the wholesale dismissal of the militant black and Latino working class from the workforce altogether. A third, the most intense, component of this ideological attack focused on the marginal sections of the working class who were subjected to long-term or structural unemployment but who were entitled to the dregs of the welfare state, such as aid to families with dependent children. This moral critique against the poor became the center of the conservative Southern strategy, a mean-spirited, cold-blooded, and cynical strategy of colorblind racism designed to undercut any sense of human solidarity with the most disadvantaged segments of the population. In addition, given the gains of the civil rights movement, room had been created for a significantly enlarged black middle class which formed both the basis for a move to the right among the major civil rights organizations and the establishment of a conservative segment of the black body politic to the right of the liberal civil rights establishment. The new black and Latino conservatives would play a useful role in the class warfare waged against the poor by those seeking to recapture the white republic of old, but this time with a large number of honorary whites, a groveling and morally debased group who capitulated to the victim-blaming and self-righteous moral poverty of the white conservatives we should not lose focus on the larger framework that enclosed this drama, that overall the central theme of this era was the crisis of U.S. hegemony represented by the military and political challenge in Vietnam and spearheaded by the increasing competitiveness of Japanese and German enterprises vis-à-vis U.S. enterprises. The global liberalism of the post-World War II era was no longer adequate, the political and economic elite sought a way to reverse the declining fortunes of the United States. The backlash started in the 1970s, The conservatism of the Reagan-Bush years was a reaction to the challenges of the 1960s and 1970s and fundamentally a reaction to the revolution of 1968. Too often this period is viewed as simply a society-wide revulsion for the extremes of the New Left. But the extremes of the New Left reflected the real polarization in the world system, in which subaltern groups allied with the American hegemon all over the world were under challenge. What was truly remarkable about this period was the depth of support in the united states for these movements in opposition to u.s hegemony and the rule of its subaltern allies this kind of internationalism had been a regular feature of large sections of the black freedom struggle and the world socialist movement but now it was the dominant position of large sections of the population with a majority of young blacks and a significant number of white college students arguing that a revolution was necessary in the united states in the united states The prototypical organizations of the New Left included SDS, the Revolutionary Action Movement, and the Black Panther Party. Yet the New Left was much more complicated than just those three groups would indicate. Robert Williams and Malcolm X were public figures who most clearly represented this trend. 5 The stories of this period generally linked the decline of the New Left with the decline of the Black Panther Party and Students for a Democratic Society. But actually the decline of these two organizations led to the proliferation of a number of organizations that define themselves as operating in the tradition started by these organizations but that had learned from their errors. If the new left organizations brandished the weapon of ungovernability, the left Leninists and the revolutionary nationalists who took up the banner of these organizations represented an unprecedented crisis of legitimacy. This stratum of activists entered the culture of the professional revolutionaries who had emerged during the anti-systemic movements of around the time of the advent of Leninism in the Soviet Union. They then emerged throughout the revolutionary movements of the capitalist world. These revolutionaries were preparing for the Long March, a protracted struggle to defeat capitalism. Many knew that they would not personally live to see the victory of the people but that they would through their struggle contribute to an alteration in the relations of force that would eventually accumulate to such an extent that the people would finally be able to overthrow the rule of capital. This had nothing to do with violent revolution and everything to do with the power of the people being organized materially and morally into an irresistible force. There is a profound historical gap in our scholarship on this period, reflecting perhaps an even more profound historical amnesia. Max Elbaum has provided a service of immeasurable value with the comprehensive analytical history of this period in his recent book, Revolution in the Air, 2002. Elbaum tells us a story of a world full of possibilities, when millions of youth sided with the barefoot people of the world as Dr. King preached during the last year of his life. For Elbaum, the revolutionary fervor of this period stemmed in part from the all important recognition that the power of the oppressed was on the rise and the strength of the status quo was on the wane, Elbaum 2002-2. During this period there was a growing sense among those protesting against social injustice that their ranks were growing and that the ranks of the aggrieved everywhere were not only growing but that they were being joined by increasing numbers of people everywhere. The decline in the strength and prestige of the defenders of the status quo were of course visible everywhere. Things were indeed changing because of the actions of the people, deepening the sense of those protesting against social injustice that their actions could bring about social change. Though it is today surprising, During the 1970s no one would be shocked that in early 1971, polls reported that upward of 3 million people thought a revolution was necessary in the United States, Elbaum, 2002-2. Forty years of an hegemonic conservative backlash have erased or rewritten the public memory of those halcyon days. The very idea of a cadre of professional revolutionaries seems like an astonishing departure from reality, but the world of the 1970s was still a part of the era of 1968 when revolution seemed to be on the agenda everywhere. The emergence of a generation of professional revolutionaries in the heart of world capitalism, building on the legacies of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and the Black Panther Party, was no laughing matter. The extremes of state violence that were visited on these predecessors were an accurate gauge of the state's reaction. Let us attempt here to carefully trace this period in U.S. history, which I will argue is of far greater import than is usually acknowledged. This history has itself become a victim of a struggle between the forces of movement, democracy, and equality on the one hand and reaction and the maintenance of an imperial, pan-European status quo on the other. Put simply, we might follow Malcolm X's insight that we were witnessing the end of white world supremacy. American Dream or American Nightmare While some have sensed in Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech at the 1963 March on Washington the most eloquent testimony to the American dream, others regard Malcolm X's description of an American nightmare as America's most fundamental challenge. Yet, no matter how bitter some have been about the hypocrisy of the American dream, there can be little doubt that these two larger-than-life figures of the 20th century precisely because their lives and actions were shaped by and helped to influence the contours of the American century the historical trajectory of the American century gave them their stage, but it also elevated their voices to a global stage because of their location in it. I have argued elsewhere that Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech represented the high point of U.S. world hegemony or what some call the American century, Bush 1999. While some were skeptical of Dr. King's dream from the outset, the momentum of the forces of progress seemed to overwhelm the forces of reaction so dramatically that people's sense of optimism was heightened beyond what seems now to be possible. These people had every confidence that the determined and the virtuous could bring about a fundamental democratic transformation of American society, in part by doing the same in the larger world. America would finally live up to its creed and would loosen its grip on countries around the world where their subaltern allies were holding down their own people in the interests of U.S. elites. While most based their pessimism on what they felt to be the prospects of the inner city poor outside of the South. The victory over Jim Crow gave to the civil rights movement a level of moral authority and momentum that might have created a political movement that could lead to the kind of transformation reflected in King's dream. Many activists and scholars felt that the failure of the dream was simply a lesson that needed to be learned, if not by the middle class leadership of the civil rights movement, then certainly by its predominantly working class base. The sense was that Malcolm X had always had it right and that King too would learn this lesson. The reification of Malcolm X and King into polar opposites, however, imposed a framework that hindered the militant's ability to understand the subtle evolution of American society and the social forces within it at that time. We all know that Malcolm X's critique caught on like wildfire subsequent to Martin Luther King's hopeful pleading and that King himself was soon to follow Malcolm's lead and say that his dream had turned into a nightmare. For Dr. King, the revolution in the streets of the black and brown ghettos and in the jungles of Vietnam had exposed the cold-blooded and ruthless nature of the American social system. To understand King's despair and his seeming transformation into an advocate of global revolution, we should pay careful attention to this historical period. In this sense J. Edgar Hoover is much more careful in his analysis of these times than many activists and scholars who supported the democratic and egalitarian ideals of the civil rights movement. Hoover understood the social psychology of rebellion. It was at this time that he argued that the civil rights movement was the leading edge of a social revolution in the United States and thus had to be destroyed. Hoover could see the power of the connections that linked the increasingly radical black freedom struggles, radical nationalist movements in the Third World, and an emerging rainbow coalition carrying a radical message to the increasingly impatient tenants of the inner city and a broad section of labor, youth, women, and liberal intellectuals and activists. Hoover understood well the social psychology of rebellion, he had studied closely the history of rebellion in the United States.6 the rise of the United States to hegemonic status in the post World War II world called for a social psychology altogether different from that of the era of contention for hegemony. The late 1940s established the centrality of anti communism to the repression of popular democracy and the construction of an atmosphere of repressive tolerance, where ideas of individual freedom coexisted with the harshest repression of political difference. An utterly white world emerged in the suburban havens, concerned with consumer goods, family life, and obeisance to God and country. God had blessed America, or rather white America, leading Time magazine editor Henry Luce to declare it the American century. The liberal and radical intelligentsia and the social movements with which they were affiliated might have opposed such a program had they not been locked in mortal internal conflict between the so-called revolutionaries and the so-called reformists in the left and between the anti-Stalinist left and those who were aligned with or open to the Communist Party and its popular fronts. One of the major instruments of this counterinsurgency was the CIA-funded Congress of Cultural Freedom, which won an important segment of the anti-Stalinist left to side with liberal and reactionary anti-communism as a mechanism for developing a patriotic center-left force that has chewed the traditional cosmopolitan internationalism of left and liberal intellectuals, thus severely constraining opposition to the Great American Celebration. The combination of carrot and stick was an effective tool for the suppression of dissent, but the evolution of worldview of U.S. activists was more complex. It was a matter of not just CIA manipulation but the establishment of an atmosphere that effectively allowed for a stance that accepted American hegemony as a positive force in a world menaced by the communist danger. It was in this context that a segment of the radical and liberal intelligentsia adopted the status quo orientation of the conservatives vis-a-vis the American presumption of leadership in world affairs. The communists had been an important force in an increasingly strong and volatile interwar workers' movement and in the struggle for racial justice as well. This is not to say that the communists built these movements but that they lent important energy and resources to them, and in the case of the struggle for racial justice, they did so like no other predominantly white organization of that time. What made the communists such a dangerous force in the eyes of the guardians of the status quo was the role that they played in connecting a great number of social forces the United States declaring that the communists were agents of a foreign power was much more a strategy for legitimizing the repression of dissent than for protecting America's national security against the Soviet Union. During the 1930s and 1940s, intellectuals and activists associated with the Popular Front came to articulate a form of American patriotism that was democratic, cosmopolitan, and egalitarian and that eschewed the racist strains of pan-European supremacy and world hegemony.7 Those sectors of the U.S. left that did not succumb to the American celebration were either associated with the Popular Front or were oriented toward the revolutionaries of the three continents, Africa, Asia, and Latin America, what in African-American parlance was known as the Dark World. That these categories of social forces frequently overlapped is a testimony to their common causes and should not be surprising or perceived as evidence of a sinister conspiracy. It was a credit to the communist movement that it recognized the transformative potential in the black freedom struggle, although the relationships formed during this period were never smooth and trouble-free. The rise of radical nationalist movements in the third world revitalized the black third world within, which had itself been repressed with the attacks on Dubois, Robeson, Alpheus Hunton, and others in the Council of African Affairs and the Peace Information Center.8. In the context of this brutal repression, the modern civil rights movement came to the fore wrapped in the blanket of anti communism. Nonetheless, the March on Washington movement of the early 1940s had firmly established an appreciation of the importance of international events and the strategizing of what was to become the black liberal leadership. But the black intellectual tradition had long been a deeply internationalist, radical tradition. The struggle during the 1940s and 1950s was to bring the black radical tradition under liberal hegemony. So the 1960s movement did not create something new. It reconnected with the long-standing black radical tradition. What was new was the conjuncture in which it took place, which provided this moment with particular significance, but which also enables us to recontextualize occurrences of black radicalism in previous eras. In the 1960s and 1970s, Malcolm X, Dr. King, and the Black Panther Party moved to the forefront of a new American revolution that would take place in solidarity with the exploited and oppressed of the larger world system. The civil rights movement centered in the South and the black nationalist movements outside the South emerged during the 1950s and 1960s as the main challenge to the American celebration since they represented the largest segment of a status group that had been explicitly excluded from the spectacular post-war economic prosperity. Women too had been largely left out or had been contradictorily incorporated as the celebrated housewives of the 1950s ideal nuclear families. This was an exceedingly cruel embrace in most cases but many women increasingly defected from the caste as even the radical men of the white new left and the third world within took up their own versions of manhood rights. Black society had functioned under the myth that the problem with black society, notoriously repeated in the controversial Moynihan report on the Negro family, was that the women ran the show, castrated black men, and so on. In the meantime, women played exemplary, though largely unrecognized, roles as leaders of the black freedom struggle. Easily recognized names here include SNCC founder Ella Baker, SNCC leader Fannie Lou Hamer, Third World Women's Alliance leader Fran Beale, Montgomery and AACP leader Rosa Parks. But there were debates taking place in many of the revolutionary organizations and many examples of strong female leadership such as in the New York City-based December 12 movement who have been central actors in the black activist movement in the city, and who have built a powerful social justice movement in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. New York readers may be familiar with Sista's place, a project started by some of the leadership of the December 12th movement. The civil rights movement and the more radical forces in the inner cities outside the South provoked a society-wide debate about the nature of racism, power, poverty, equality, and democracy. These debates in the overall circumstances of the era led to the elaboration of social policy based on vastly expanded notions of equality and social justice. The notion of institutional racism propounded by the Black Power militants. For example, was the foundation for the development of relatively radical attacks on the racial division of labor via policies such as affirmative action. In contrast to this great flowering of opportunity for populations within the boundaries of the United States, the demands of an imperial state were to undermine this debate and polarize America in ways not seen since the Civil War. The defenders of the status quo mounted a counterinsurgency unprecedented in U.S. history that led to the assassinations of Malcolm X, Dr. King, Fred Hampton, Bunchy Carter. George Jackson, among others, and to the imprisonment of many others. These assassinations were devastating to the young radical forces and fundamentally altered the terms of the struggle. Leaders such as these are a rarity. While the secular left is often critical of what they call the cult of personality, all revolutionary movements have leaders whose skills and charisma are important components of the revolutionary process. While the deepening of the revolution beyond the mobilization for state power requires a democratization of leadership, the very extraordinariness of revolution itself requires exceptional leadership. I have attempted to argue here that Dr. King and Malcolm X did not create this moment. During what some call the American century, a mature global liberalism held sway, promising the spread of the good and then the great society to all Americans and eventually to all in the world who followed their example and direction. Dr. King pushed this idea as far as possible. But Malcolm X was skeptical. The youthful rebels of SDS argued for a radical democratization of U.S. society. But the rebellion against U.S. hegemony manifested in the struggles in Vietnam, Algeria, Cuba, China, Ghana, Guinea, and other parts of the three continents undermined the largesse of the liberal state. One of the central themes of the 20th century black freedom struggle was the rise of the dark world, which now seemed at hand. The rapports de force had shifted decisively in favor of the colonized semi-colonized, dependent zones of the world economy, and Malcolm X, SNCC, SDS, the Congress of Racial Equality, and finally Dr. King and a host of others called not only for solidarity with the revolutionaries of the three continents but also for their followers to become a part of this elemental rebellion against the way things were. The world revolutionary trend was global in scope, despite the global power of U.S. hegemony, or perhaps because of the global power of the U.S. hegemon. I now refocus the lens to see how the seizure of center stage by the wretched of the earth affected the nature of the debates among social scientists and others concerned with social policy, poverty, race, and social inequality. Scholarly debate is not simply about scholarly taste for ideas, it is in addition a response to action in the streets, and thus, at its best, a manifestation of the human agency of the oppressed. 9. Scholars Debate Poverty, Race, and Class Formation While the term culture of poverty originated in the work of Oscar Lewis, 1959, the concept that it purports to describe derives at least from the early period of capitalism, when pauperism was the fate of large sections of the proletarianized masses in the core of the capitalist world economy. While Michael B. Katz, 1989, argues that terms such as culture of poverty and underclass are simply modern terms for the very old concept of the undeserving poor, I argue for a broader definition of the concept. Rooted in the central stratifying processes of the capitalist world economy, Lewis's use of the term "culture of poverty," like Marx's use of the term "lumpenproletariat," reflected a concern about the degradation of the lower rungs of the working population by the conditions of their existence in the capitalist system. Lewis, like Marx, felt that this condition reflected the fact that some sections of the population, for Marx, the lower rung of the reserve army of labor were completely demoralized and declassed by their experiences at the very bottom of the economic ladder. For both Lewis and Marx, the terms culture of poverty and proletariat" corresponded to the level of perceived class consciousness and political organization among the lowest rung of the working class. To some extent, both men used these terms to call attention to the degradations of the capitalist system, although their overall frameworks differed. Similarly, Michael Harrington and Moynihan used similar approaches, although different concepts to appeal to the political and economic elite, intellectuals, and the middle class to support reforms that would alleviate the wretched conditions of the other America and the black family, respectively.10. Although there were differences in the views of the authors cited above, they all can be said to be on the left of the political spectrum.11 The differences in conceptual elaboration between the revolutionary, Marxist, left and the reformist left, i.e., Moynihan, were polarized by the social practice of the lower strata itself leading to a significant breakthrough in understanding of the ideological underpinnings of the capitalist world economy on the revolutionary left, for example, the critique of universalism by Samir Amin and Emanuel Wallerstein twelve, into the cooptation of sections of the reformist left by the conservative elites of the capitalist system, Monaghan in particular, but the neoconservatives in general. 13. By the mid and late 1960s, the notion of a culture of poverty or of the predominant demoralization of the lower strata became increasingly untenable, as this sector of the population rose in revolt all around the world and thus began to speak for itself. In doing this it was supported by left-wing and organic intellectuals and political leaders such as France Fanon, Mao Zedong, Malcolm X, André Gunder Frank, and Samir Amin.14 in the face of the Algerian Revolution, the great proletarian cultural revolution in China, the Black Power Movement, the Vietnam Liberation Movement, and the generalized World Revolution of 1968, the idea of a culture of poverty seemed to lack grounding in reality. While in the 1960s, liberal intellectuals used the term culture of poverty to support their appeals for an interventionist approach to the problems of poverty, by the 1970s the term had become a tool of conservative reaction and the left had began to articulate the more radical notion of a culture of resistance. There is in Lewis's work a distinct notion that when lower-class people organize themselves in trade unions or socialist parties, that is, when they became class-conscious, then they are no longer a part of the culture of poverty. This notion is quite similar to the notion of a culture of resistance. The idea of a culture of resistance was popularized by the anthropologist Mina Davis Caulfield, 1969, 1974. She adapted it from Robert Blauner. Who described a process of culture building as central to the cultural activities of the African slaves in North America? For Caulfield, this process developed as both an adaptation to and a protest against the social experience of the colonial situation. She argues that this process could be discerned in the group lives of most, if not all, culturally exploited people. 15. Caulfield argued we must look not only at the way in which the colonizer acts to break down family solidarity, but also the ways in which the colonized, women, men, and children, act to maintain, consolidate, and build anew the basic units in which children can grow and be enculturated in the values and relationships that are independent of and in opposition to imperial culture, Caulfield 1974-72-73. 16. In contrast to the theory of a culture of poverty, Caulfield argued that the main characteristics of the culture of resistance are resourcefulness, flexibility, and creativity, rather than fatalism, passivity, and dependence. In contrast to Lee Rainwater, she argued that cultures of resistance are not simple adaptive mechanisms, but alternative means of organizing production, reproduction, and value systems critical of those of the oppressor, Caulfield 1974-84. 17. The term culture of resistance acquired broad usage throughout the left, particularly in the context of the World Revolution of 1968.18. Wallerstein argued in 1980 that the world economy is a complex of cultures, however, not a haphazard one. For Wallerstein there existed a Weltanschauung of imperium, albeit, one with many variants, and cultures of resistance to this imperium, Wallerstein 1984-13-26. 19. For Wallerstein, the deepening of the capitalist division of labor, the need to facilitate its operation through the allocation of workforces, and the justification of inequality led to the use of an ideology of racism that became the central organizing theme of the world bourgeoisie. Equally central was the ideology of universalism that held that there existed a universal culture to which the cadres of the world division of labor were assimilated. Wallerstein defined culture as the, the idea system of the capitalist world economy, Wallerstein 1991 166. In this sense he viewed culture as the outcome of our collective historical attempts to come to grips with the contradictions, ambiguities and socio-political complexities of the capitalist world. Seen in this way, then Wallerstein concludes The very construction of culture is the key ideological battleground of the opposing interests in the capitalist system. Why, then, is racism the central organizing cultural theme of the world bourgeoisie? There is general agreement that capitalism is by definition an inegalitarian system, but how does this fact square with the ideology of equality of opportunity? The argument is that reward is based on merit, and that all, even the children of the poor, if they are talented, have the opportunity to obtain high reward but since there is so little upward social mobility, how is it that the notion of equality of opportunity is not declared a sham? The justification, according to Wallerstein, is precisely racism. It provides the only acceptable legitimation of the reality of large-scale collective inequalities within the ideological constraints of the capitalist world economy. It makes such inequalities legitimate because it provides theoretically for their transitory nature while in practice postponing real change for the Greek kalens. The hinge of the argument is that those who have low ethnic status, and consequently low occupational position for the most part, find themselves in this position because of an unfortunate but theoretically eradicable cultural heritage. They come from a group which is somehow less oriented to rational thinking, less disciplined in its work ethic, less desirous of educational and or earned achievement. Because we no longer claim these presumed differential aptitudes are genetic but merely cultural we congratulate ourselves on having overcome the crudities of racism. We tend to forget that if a cultural heritage differs from a biological one in that it is historically changeable, it is also true that, if the word culture means anything here, it indicates a phenomenon that is slow to change, and is slow to change precisely because it has become part of the superegos of most members of the group in question, Wallerstein 1988. 20. In this way the oppressed are told that their position in the world can be transformed provided they are educated in the skills necessary to act in certain ways, which are said to be the means by which the currently high-ranking groups obtain their positions. It is precisely the slowness of change that makes racism so central to the functioning of the capitalist world economy. Wallerstein also argues that ethnic consciousness both enables a group to struggle politically for its rights and socializes the young to a realistic perception of social polarization and thus to occupational expectations. So, racism keeps people in while their labor is needed, it is able to put them on hold when their labor is not needed, and it can bring them back in when conditions permit. This means, according to Wallerstein, that such groups are eager and willing to be brought back in and thus can rightly be considered a reserve army in a literal sense. Wallerstein 1988 13 14. There may be less reserve than meets the eye, though. While racism may impede one's entry into the formal economy, We must know something about the operation of the informal economy before we can speak with relatively certainty of someone's willingness to be brought back in. So if there come to be better opportunities in the so-called informal economy, criminal employment, drug dealing, and the like, will some members opt for this more lucrative opportunity than for the marginal jobs normally available to them, even in good times? Why not? Any teenager can tell you that the attraction of the drug economy is the quick buck. What is there in the cultural values of the dominant culture had entreats us not to go after the quick buck. Certainly there exist value systems among the population, religious values, black nationalist values, etc., that alternatives to the dominant value system. Despite all the hype one hears about the need for positive role models in the inner city, we seem as a society quite disappointed in the propensity of some inner city denizens to follow the bottom line thinking of the corporate elite. Where does that leave us? We must understand the idea of a culture of resistance as a product of a period of popular mobilization among the peripheral and peripheralized populations of the capitalist world economy. During periods of demobilization, this culture of resistance takes an individual form and today is referred to by some scholars as a culture of opposition, sometimes viewed simply as negative or nihilistic, Anderson 1999-316, West, 1994-17-31. Twenty-one Lewis argues that one of the things that distinguish groups that we think of as having a culture is that they are self-conscious. Thus, to the extent that the urban poor are not a self-conscious or class-conscious group, but atomized individuals, Lewis argues, a culture of poverty can be said to exist. Lewis, nineteen seventy seventy-four. Who could disagree with the sentiment expressed here? Lewis is impressed by his observations of revolutionary Cuba. O. Lewis, R. Lewis, and S. Rigdon, nineteen seventy-seven A. 1977b but does this lament about the presumed lack of class consciousness among the inner city poor in the united states point us in the right direction i think not we must resist the magic aura that these words hold and recognize the impact of multiple stratifying processes which give rise to interlocking forms of oppression and exploitation not just that of class here again we see the hegemonic class first lens that we reviewed in chapter 3 max weber viewed classes in relationship to one another as simply objective categories but not ones that implied any form of consciousness or capacity for collective action. He argued that immediate class interests were given by market position and hence were theoretically indeterminate so far as collective action was concerned. For collective action to take place, something in addition to class interests had to be introduced, Weber, 1978-926-939. To to in contrast, status groups are by definition groups that act collectively in relation to one another and are endowed with the will to collective action. For Weber, political communities entail by construction value systems, which provide the parameters in which groups have more or less legitimacy and prestige in comparison with one another, and with reference to which they have more or less pride, solidarity, or capacity to act collectively in relation to one another. Thus a status group structured distribution of power provides a natural or logical context for the collective action of status groups. In contrast, A class-structured distribution of power does not provide its constituent classes with any necessary solidarity in their relations with one another and hence no capacity for collective action, because the market principle eliminates all considerations of honor or is constrained in its working by such considerations. For Giovanni Righi, Terence K. Hopkins, and Emmanuel Wallerstein, 1989, this calls for an extension of Weber, which presupposes that by definition status groups are constituents of and thereby carriers of a moral order. Classes are not, if they become so, it is in virtue of processes fundamentally different from, and not entailed in, those that constitute them as classes in relation to one another, Arighi, Hopkins, Wallerstein, 1989-3-28. Arighi, Hopkins, and Wallerstein counsel us to resist the intellectual pressure to reify groups, to presume their permanence and longevity, although they realize that it is difficult to resist such pressure. They point out that while groups that are self-conscious seem to act collectively in significant ways and seem very solid and resilient, we tend to lose sight of the extent to which this solidarity is a consequence of the group's actions in relationship to others. Following this line of reasoning, we would conclude that class consciousness and other forms of group consciousness, or cultures, are derivative. They derive from the social practice of the groups involved. That is why the term culture of poverty fell into disuse during the high tide of political and social mobilization among the lower strata worldwide, and why it returned to favor during a period when these strata became the objective of a withering economic, political, and ideological offensive and were rendered politically and socially subordinate. While there are many who have viewed the phenomenon of ethnic proletarianization as a dilemma reflecting particular national situations, such as those in the United States and South Africa, Wallerstein argues, in opposition to Gunnar Myrdal, 1944, that racism and underdevelopment are not dilemmas, but constitutive of the capitalist world economy as a historical system. Indeed, according to Wallerstein, racism and underdevelopment are the primary conditions and essential manifestations of the unequal distribution of surplus value. They make possible the ceaseless accumulation of capital. They organize the process occupationally and legitimate it politically. Wallerstein, 1988 17. We are not captives of these structural restraints. Just as the political and military defeat of the 1960s-1970s insurgency provided the condition for the reassertion of such regressive formulations as the culture of poverty and the underclass, it may well be that there will not be a resurgence of large-scale sympathetic study of the lower strata until they reassert themselves as a social and political force. In the meantime, some who are more closely aligned with these strata may set out the questions that seem most in need of investigation in terms of the system of structural and ideological constraints that so profoundly restrict the human potential of the most disadvantaged members of our social world we should be particularly attuned to those issues that will assist particular sections of the lower strata in getting a grip on their situations so that they can take efficacious action as the opportunity presents itself in we are not what we seem I attempted to use these formulations to analyze the trajectory of the black freedom struggle during the American century. It seemed clear to me that the universalism versus racism and sexism, Balabar and Wallerstein 1991, ideological tension was key to understanding the different modalities of the black freedom struggle.22 It helped me to understand that from the viewpoint of certain strata in the ruling class, the civil rights movement was part of the mature global liberalism of the American century. It was not so much that the civil rights movement itself was the program of the liberal ruling class, but that they had their own civil rights agenda to which they were able to co-opt some in the black liberal establishment. Talented 10th radicalism remained the most powerful component of the civil rights movement, however, and when articulated with the worldview of the black working class, I neglected to emphasize black women, the black radical tradition remains the most powerful pole of anti-systemic thought in American society. What is the worldview of the black working class? I held that since the black working class continued to be a victim of racism, which was intensified during the post-civil rights period, various forms of black nationalism would continue to resonate with this class. While the black working class might someday transcend this nationalism, thus far revolutionary nationalism had been the most powerful component of the black radical tradition, for example, the work of Hubert Harrison, Cyril Briggs, W.E.B. Dubois, Paul Robeson, Malcolm X, Huey Newton, and Queen Mother Moore. 23. Despite the seeming permanence of racism as an ideological feature of historical capitalism, we should pay close attention to emerging groups generated by the changing shape and forms of the capitalist world economy. Perhaps these groups will combine in unforeseen ways and the centers of social action will shift at given times. We should not forget the constant refrain of the civil rights movement to keep our eyes on the prize.